0: I want to uh, read the whole text today, which is actually two psalms, um, and that is Psalm sixty and sixty-one. So I'll just read them for for purposes of speed, <laughs> and uh, and then and then we will look at the text together. <clears throat> I think it's important to read the. Uh, what is called the superscription to help us understand uh, the context of this. And so I'll read that as well uh, there at at the first part of Psalm 60. To the choir master, according to Shushan Edith, a mictum of David for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharam and Aram Zobah, probably not saying that right, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the valley of salt. O oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have you have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open, repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. That your... Beloved ones, may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in His holiness. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who treads down our foes. And then Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be... Enthroned forever before God, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over Him. So will I ever sing praises to Your name as I perform my vows day after day. God, let us behold Your blessed Son and catch a glimpse of His majesty as revealed in Your Word. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As uh, I prepared this message this week, I just pondering, I just heard the kids singing over and over in my mind, Jesus strong and kind. And uh, I, I love it I love that song, and I love for the children to sing it because I think it's an appropriate song for for the children to sing. Because of its, really, its straightforward simplicity. I, I, I think that the kids can sing it and they can sing it with oomph because they can get it, they can grasp it. They're not just singing some abstract thought, they're singing something that they, can, that they can know themselves. But the kids are not the only ones that sing that song. We also sing that song. And it ministers to us too, doesn't it? Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. See how it's simple and straightforward. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And He showed me on that cross, He will come to me. And then the chorus, For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. There are a multitude of reasons I think that we we love to hear the kids sing this song. Some are spiritual and some maybe not so much, but they're perfectly okay. But I think one of the reasons that this song ministers to us is bound up with its simple straightforwardness. And that is, it's instructive in nature. This song teaches us something. It tells us something we should do in response to Christ. And and we want the kids to know that, don't we? We want the children to know that when they're thirsty, weak, fearful, or lost... That they can come to Jesus because He's strong to save them and to help them. And He's kind to receive them. And it also instructs us and ministers to us who are older than the children. Because we have lived long enough to discover many times over... That we can always run to Jesus. Isn't, isn't that right? We, we like to hear the kids sing that because we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Trust me. I've lived long enough to know that you can run to Jesus. So you should also run to Jesus. So what we're doing is we're singing with the children, instructing them. And that's how corporate singing works. Instructing them to run to Jesus because we know from experience we can run to Jesus. To Jesus, Well, our text, especially, I think, Psalm 60, does something similar to the instructive nature of the song, Jesus, Strong and Kind. And I read the superscription, and, and you may have noticed in the superscription, and that is just that little section in all caps in your Bible, that kind of gives us the context of, of where we are. We don't have that in every psalm, but it's nice when we do... Have it, but uh, you may notice in that superscription that it says that this psalm is for instruction. So this is a song of instruction. It has an instructive nature to it. So it is it is singing about something that we should do. The outcome is already known in this situation, and it's seen in the superscription. That's also seen in that superscription. And what it is, and I don't, I don't have a lot of time, uh, but you can, uh, you can trust me on this. It's an account of victory from 2 Samuel chapter 8. There's just kind of a, a going through of the account of David's, uh, of David's victory, kind of in the beginning of his uh, kingship of Israel. So David, through his prayer... What he's doing in this this situation is he is reminding the people of a time of distress to instruct them. So when he's talking about you have rejected us, you have broken down our defenses, you've been angry, he is talking about a time of distress so that he can instruct them that they can cry out to their sovereign God in their distress and that God will tread down their foes, like it says in verse 12 of, of Psalm 60. And then I think there's a connection, Psalm 61 connects the stress of God's people as they call out to the Lord, as we see the servant of the Lord calling out to the Lord when his heart is faint, and then their sovereign protector promises to establish his kingdom. So then taking Psalm 60 as a psalm of instruction and 61 together as I believe it connects, I think kind of what this psalm is teaching us or instructing us is that in our distress we can cry out to our sovereign God who will deliver us and establish His kingdom as we respond in worship and lives of praise to God. And I think that is the central message of psalm 60 and 61 i also think and want to uh, divide this message into four sections today so we can work through it and first i want us to see a distressing situation a distressing situation and then the second thing we will see and i think maybe you can already see this a sovereign protector third we're going to look at the establishment in verse or chapter 61 of a eternal king and then finally uh, psalm 61 ends the instruction appropriately with a song of praise so first let's look at this distressing situation that's described in psalm 60 and in psalm 61 and spurgeon helped me to see the context of, of psalm 60 and in helping me see the context of Psalm 60, it also helped me with the connection, the way that these passages connect together. And so I just want to take a second to, to begin with that. And that superscription shows us that this psalm was written when God gave David victory over his enemies. And this came apparently at the command of Joab and Abishai, as recorded in... Uh, 2 Samuel 18 and in 1 Chronicles 18. So there's some homework for you. Go back and see that so you'll, you'll know what's uh, going on better and you don't just take my word for it. So by this time, what has happened in 2 Samuel 8 and 1 Chronicles 18, in that context, Saul has died and David was made king and the Ark of the Covenant was established in Jerusalem. It's one of the first things that David did when he became the uh, king of Israel. And, and now, in 2 Samuel 8 and 1 Chronicles 18, recording the same things, God was giving David victory over the enemies that had troubled Israel for some time, really due to Saul's inability to, to lead righteously. So, what David is doing in, these, in the distressing situation of this psalm is he is prayerfully reflecting back to that distressing time in Israel's history, but he is doing it for instruction. He's doing it with the the intent or the purpose of instructing God's people. That's stated, as I've already said, in the the superscription. And I'll try not to say that word again because I'm having a hard time saying it. First, so first, David wants to connect the distressing situation that comes to God's people from defeat and oppression. That's what they were suffering under Saul's reign, with the idea that they are in such distress because God is not with them. That's that's what he's. That's what the first thing. Maybe he's trying to instruct them. Note that defenses are being defenses rather are uh, broken down. The land is being torn. The people are staggering with abundance of hard things, and that is grounded in the fact that God was angry with them and had rejected them. So the distress does not arise ultimately from the fact that there are enemies from without against them. That is certainly a manifestation, but the distressing situation does not arise ultimately from that. Ultimately, the distress arises from the fact that God is not for them. So it's not that enemies are against you, but it's that God is not for you. We also see a distressing situation that I think connects with Psalm 60 and Psalm 61 verses 1 and 2. Here, David is in distress because his heart is faint. And he feels separated from God, his rock or his refuge, as he calls him. He even says that he feels like he is at the end of the earth. He says, from the end of the earth I call to you. And that's most likely a way of saying as far removed from God as possible. So even the the understanding of Jerusalem as the dwelling place, the city of God. And he is saying... I feel like that I am on the other side of the earth from Jerusalem. I feel like that I am a million miles away from you. So this is his distress too. His heart is faint because God seems distant from him. But note that the tone of both Psalm 60 and 61 is a cry to God in the distressing situation with a hope of finding refuge and victory in the presence of God, Israel's sovereign protector. So it's not just a groan. The instruction is not just to say, hey folks, uh, we're in such a bad situation because God is not with us. Good luck. But... Rather, he is giving this distressing situation, the tone is a cry in this distressing situation, with the hope of finding refuge and victory in God, because it is understood that God is Israel's sovereign protector. And that's what we get. That's what we get in Psalm 64 through 8, and, and in that first section or Psalm 61, 3 through 5, and we can see God revealed as a sovereign protector. I thought that it was interesting to note the similarities in the fourth verses of both Psalms to kind of show how they connect, especially as it relates to God being Israel's sovereign protector. Look at uh, verse 4 of Psalm 60. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. And then in 61.4, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. So both are places of protection. In the midst of the cries of distress, God is seen as a place of refuge and protection. In Psalm 64, God has set up a banner which is probably like a, a rallying point. You would see a banner raised on the field of battle and you would know that you needed to rally to that place. And it was apparently some means of protection from the arrows and the darts and the spears that were flying around the battlefield. In Psalm 61.4, we kind of get the same picture. We see a refuge under the shelter of the wings of, of the presence of God, and here's something. Here's something cool uh, that that uh, may just be interesting to think of. That word "sela" or "selah" is kind of a, a reflective pause in these songs that that may have even been accompanied by some some instrumental music, some some kind of instrumentation, and so I can just see them. This this cry of distress saying, let me dwell in your tent, shelter me with your wings. You have been a banner for us. And then there is a pause in this song in their time of corporate worship as the instruments swell to begin to reveal that God is their sovereign protector. I don't know if that's exactly the way it took place, but it makes me feel good to think about that. It's it's very possible that that's that's what that's what uh, that's what took place. That's why I said it's cool. All right, uh, but but nonetheless, uh, Psalm sixty reveals God not only as protector, but also as sovereign over all the earth. Do you see that? So He is protector. They can they can find shelter from the arrows on the battlefield. But not only is he protecting them, but this protector of theirs is sovereign over all the earth. It is God who determines how he will divide Shechem. And how he will portion out the veil of Succoth. Or Succoth. God is the one who has made Gilead and Manasseh his. God has determined to make Ephraim his helmet and Judah his scepter. And not only does God determine what to do with His people, but He also determines what to do with His enemies. With Moab, Edom, and Philistia. He cast His shoe out over uh, uh, Edom. Moab is His wash basin. He will shout in triumph over Philistia. In fact... These are actually the enemies that David conquers in that context of Psalm 60 that we get in the superscription uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 1 Chronicles chapter 18. So it is God who will sovereignly protect His people from their enemies. The reason they had failed was because God rejected them, but the reason that they are projected or protected rather, is because they have fled to God as their sovereign protector. Isn't that something? So God has rejected them because of of their sin, but they can flee to this God as their sovereign protector. That teaches us something about the grace of God, doesn't it? The reason they they had failed was because God rejected them, but but they are protected as they flee to God. That That is why David can say that the salvation of man is vanity. It's nothing. We can try to save ourselves a thousand times, but we will constantly fail. But with God, they can do valiantly. Because it is God, their protector, who is their sovereign protector, and He will trample down their enemies. Beloved, I think that we, we ought to learn this lesson well. We ought to hear the instruction of the psalmist here. Do you ever feel torn apart with sin and struggle? I'm going to say that you're not saying anything, but the answer to that, and you probably recognize that as a rhetorical question because the answer is yes. Are we often defenseless against every temptation? Is our lives ever so unstable and so difficult that we stagger around aimlessly not knowing what to do or what direction to take? Do we feel like Sometimes we are on the other side of the planet in our most distressing times. In our faintness of heart. We feel like that we are on the other side of the planet from God's presence. Are you faint from the constant onslaught of the uh, the enemy's arrows being shot at you by the enemy of your soul? May I remind you what I believe the psalmist is instructing God's people. That God is your protector. He has established a refuge that we may flee to and find shelter in. A rallying point. His tent is a place where we can find refuge and shelter. But I also want to say to you that He is not only a place where we can find refuge and shelter, but He is a sovereign protector All the earth is His. He created it, and He has the right to do with it whatsoever He will. And listen, this is great news for us, because sometimes we ask, if God is sovereign, then why is He allowing these things to happen to me? But... But the wonderful news is in the answer to this question. God is sovereign and He is allowing these things to happen to you for His good purposes. They didn't just come all of a sudden God was like, Oh no, what am I going to do now that this thing is happening to my people? That's not the way it works. God knew it. He has ordained it for our very good. He is sovereign. All of the earth is His. In fact, it is quite possible that God has ordained all this distress to awaken you or to awaken us to the fact that we need to stop relying on ourselves to get ourselves through it, to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, to check off the list of things that we can do to make sure that we are victorious, and instead cry to Jesus. I found the words of Spurgeon helpful and potent to my own soul here. To be cast off by God is the worst calamity that can befall a man or a people. But the worst form of it is when the person is not aware of it and indifferent to it. When the divine desertion causes mourning and repentance, it will be but partial and temporary when a cast-off soul sighs for its god it is not indeed cast off at all dear ones for when for whatever reason and there are a multitude of reasons we are faint and thirsty when we are weak and staggering when we are attacked viciously when we are fearful I want us to hear this psalm of instruction. We can always run to Jesus. He is our sovereign protector. I believe I also need to say something here to the unbeliever who may be hearing me today. You may or may not feel distressed today. But I need to warn you that because of your sin, you are also not under the protection of... Of God. Unbelieving friend, you are a sinner not only because you commit sin, but because the human nature is corrupted by sin because of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Further, God is righteous, and because He is righteous, He must judge sin. Which means that you don't just need protection, unbelieving friend, you need protection from God Himself who will pour out His wrath on all sin. And this is, is again, what this psalm teaches us about the grace of God. Because God, by His mercy and grace, even the one that we need protection from, God, by His mercy and grace, has provided a banner, a rock of refuge. He has provided salvation from His wrath by pouring out His wrath against sinners upon His holy Son, Jesus. Also, to prove that God was pleased with this substitute sacrifice for sinners, He raised Jesus from the grave. Friend, no one else did or even could die for sinners. Which means, unbeliever, your only hope of escaping God's wrath is by believing this gospel message that I'm presenting to you at this moment and casting your hope and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Jesus said if we're lost, He will come to us. And He showed on that cross, He will come to us. Unbeliever, I plead with you to hear the instruction of the children. Run to Jesus. He is kind to receive you and strong to save you from your sin and from wrath to come. Next we see in Psalm 61, 6 through 7, an eternal king. There is a mention of an eternal king following the instruction of Psalm sixty. And in those connections that, that I think are there in Psalm 61, that God's people can cry out to God in their distress because He is their sovereign protector, we find David praying for the reign of the king. And I think in the immediate context, we, we hear David's prayer for his own long reign. He wants a long life and he wants an established kingdom. But David goes a step further, doesn't he? He goes a step further than simply asking for a long, a long life or a reign, or even a step further than for family succession. Rather, David asked for a king that would be enthroned for all generations forever before God. Sounds like it might go deeper than just a human king, doesn't it? And interestingly, there are striking connections between Psalm 60 and 61... And Psalm 44 and 45, so there's some more homework. Go back, maybe as a Lord's Day evening activity, you can go back and read Psalm 44 and 45 and then read again our text and try to see those connections. Both Psalm 44 and 60 speak of calling upon God. I remember this because I preached 44. Psalm 44 and 60 speak of calling upon God in a time of distress that's associated with a feeling of being rejected by God. You may remember that. And then in uh, both Psalm 45 and Psalm 60, 45 is thy throne, that's the call to worship today. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So both Psalm 45 and 61 speak of an eternal king who is enthroned forever and ever. In fact, the author of Hebrews immediately connects the king of Psalm 45 with Jesus, the Son of God. And that's Hebrews chapter 1. And I don't think it's a stretch in the least to believe that David is speaking of this same eternal king in Psalm 61, 6 through 7. As a matter of fact, I think it would be a stretch to say otherwise, but I'm not here to argue that. What I'm trying to show here is that these psalms give more than a hope for deliverance from the distresses of temporal enemies and earthly trials and sufferings. These psalms do more than just promise deliverance from temporal distress. Rather, in the midst of the prayers of distress to the sovereign protector, list, look at this, there's an anticipation of an eternal king and an eternal kingdom. And this is something key to know. The Old Testament saints look forward in anticipation to this eternal king, though they only saw it in shadows. Probably what David is doing here in this psalm. But New Testament people of God... Know that this anticipation of, eternal, of, it, of an eternal king who would sit on the throne of David forever is fulfilled in Jesus. And that's actually what the author of Hebrews is doing. to saying, oh, he sees it clearly. This king that is being spoken of in the book of Psalms, this is Jesus. This is the Davidic king that will sit on the throne of God forever and ever. And do, So, do you see what a marvelous thing the Word of God does here? And this is what I'm driving at, and I hope, I hope that you get it here. The Word of God continually lifts our gaze in this psalm higher and higher until it reaches the eternal realm. The initial gaze is at the distressing situation, isn't it? You have rejected us. I feel so far from you, but then the next place our sights are set is protection in the onslaught of earthly difficulties, and so there is a, a higher gaze that says, "Okay, I'm in my distress, but there is a place of sovereign protection that I can that I can flee to and find dist- or relief from my distress." And then we might even say that the next gaze is to a good and righteous king in David who will reign righteously and will undo the wrongs of the unrighteous king, Saul. But even with his eternal language, may he be enthroned forever before God, it raises our sights a little higher And raises our gaze to the eternal where we see King Jesus seated on the throne. Reigning in steadfast love and faithfulness forever and ever. Beloved, the more we turn our eyes to God in our cries and tears of distress. Our misty gaze begins to behold in an ever clearer way the majesty of Jesus seated on His throne, ruling in faithfulness and steadfast love forever. The distress of this life causes us to cry out to God and flee to Him as sovereign protector so that we can see God's redemptive purposes in Christ. Beloved, if we would grasp that, then I think that we would find a great sense of purpose and relief in our earthly distresses. Finally, this psalm ends with, or these psalms, I should say, end with a song of praise. So what does this crying out to God in distress and a, catching a glimpse of the eternal King produce in David? David. Psalm 61 says it, So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Psalm 61 says it results in a song of praise and performance of vows. And and I made a distinction there between praise and performance of vows, but did you see the way the text reads? David says he will sing praise as he performs his vows. I've said it before, as, as in this section, in this book two of, of Psalms. But performing vows is a way for the Old Testament to speak of a life of consecration and obedience to God. So when he's talking about performing vows in the Old Testament, it's talking about consecration and obedience to the Lord. So do you see that his life of obedience in his song of praise becomes so closely associated that they nearly become the same thing. He is performing his vows as he sings praises to the Lord. So, David, are you performing your vows? Well, yes. Well, are you singing praises to the Lord? Well, yes. So, so are you singing praises? with Yes, I'm singing praises. Are you performing? your? Yes, that's what I'm doing because I'm doing both at the same time. They They just bleed down into one another and they come so intricately connected that they're almost the same thing. Beloved, I wish so bad that I could constantly remind my heart and yours that when we behold Jesus, songs of praise and a life of obedience, same thing. We don't have this separate, oh, I have to obey God. And then this, oh, I can sing praises. No, we perform our vows as we sing songs of praise to the Lord. Our life of obedience, when we are beholding Christ, our life of obedience hardly seems like obedience. It hardly seems difficult at all. Oh, I wish that I would learn this. (laughs) May this psalm instruct me to do so. As a matter of fact, I think that one of the main points of all the psalms in general, really, is that as we live in the world of sin and sorrow, on our way to the kingdom, our lives increasingly become prayers and... And songs of praise to the Lord. So may I ask dear ones. If someone were to listen closely to the song you sing. With your life. With your Christian life. Would it be a song of praise to the Lord? And let me just say mom and dad. Your children are listening closely. Husband and wife. Your spouse's are listening.